Progressive Rugby League. What's in a name, hey? The Progressive Rugby League Podcast. Whose idea was it to label this little show with such a lofty and kind of ridiculous title? Well, I think it was mine. I've mentioned our origin story before, but for those new to the show, a very quick summary. Three friends having drinks one Friday night in February 2018. I, John O'Duncan, one said friend. Melbourne Storm v Leeds Rhinos on the big screen. A world club challenge played in Melbourne in front of 20,000 people. Felt like progress. Someone threw out the term progressive rugby league. We laughed. It sounded like a punchline. After all, it seemed the news was full of rugby league behaviour of the retrograde kind. But the term quickly grew on us, and we soon realised, you know what, rugby league is, relatively speaking, acknowledging the blind spots, a pretty progressive sport. So a few drinks later, we had ourselves a podcast, and a few days later, we recorded our first episode. We didn't think too hard beyond episode one, but unpacking progressive rugby league, the term, was somewhere on the future agenda. Now, I want to say that the irony was not lost on us that three whitish, middle-classish dudes were starting a show called the Progressive Rugby League Podcast. But I can confess exclusively that the irony was indeed totally, absolutely, positively lost on us. Well, me anyway. Like I said, we didn't really think it through too much. And I guess it dawned on me a few weeks in when, like most ill-thought-out podcasts, we started running out of ideas. Well, ideas relating to our original concept. I remember around week four or five we were chatting. What should we talk about this week? I read out a list I'd written weeks previously on potential topics. We'd pretty much exhausted the list, of course, except one bullet point cheerleaders in rugby league i read it aloud there was a silence as we looked at each other or were we looking in a mirror unspoken we discarded the idea realizing we were out of our depth and that perhaps the name we'd given our show had a bit more weight than we'd realized or intended but anyway since then we've obviously evolved and transformed a bit and made it to this our 100th episode (laughs) to mangle a 2020ism we are what we are but if there's one thing we'd like the record to show for all our inevitable faults It's that we've never stopped trying to learn, to improve, and be better. And so today, I think we have the perfect guest to help us continue on that quest. Mary Constantopoulos is the founder of the Ladies Who movement. Since starting out as the Lady Who Leagues in 2013, Mary has spread her wings and is now an enthusiastic and formidable advocate for women across all aspects of all sport. Mary, a lawyer by trade, is also an excellent writer and recently penned a thought-provoking NRL.com number on Would You Believe It? cheerleaders in rugby league so what better time to have her on to speak about that and hopefully a bit more too so here we are progressive rugby league welcoming a guest that is much more deserving and reflective of that descriptor than we are now that's irony i recognize mary constantopoulos welcome to the progressive rugby league podcast thank you so much for having me and congratulations on 100 episodes what a milestone thank you very much thank you very much it's been a few years and it's been a lot of fun so really appreciate you coming on no thank you for having me mary before we get to the crux of our subject matter today you're an experienced hand at this podcasting thing and you'll know that it always helps an interview if there's a rapport between interviewer and guest so I'm going to be pretty blatant here and give our listeners a peek behind the podcast making curtain and just try to build some rapport here and now. Let's live a little. Okay, so let's do it. So, Mary, you're a tragic Parramatta Eels fan, and it's this love, one could argue, 
that started you on the path you found yourself on, you know, towards future national treasure, if I may say so. Now, Mary, I am also a Parramatta Eels fan. There's the rapport building. So, oh, you poor thing. <laughs> so I thought we could start by sharing our quintessential Parramatta Eels experiences. What is your quintessential Parramatta Eels experience where you just look back and think, you know what, that says it all? I think my favourite experience was when Parramatta beat the Bulldogs in 2009 to progress to the grand final. Yes. And I remember that night especially because I went with my dad, I went with my brothers and my godfather and we were all really big Parramatta fans. And I just remember the stadium being full that night. And at that time, the rivalry between Parramatta and the Bulldogs was still something to behold. So there was a match with a lot of intensity. At that time, there was a battle over Daniel Mortimer and who would be signing him for the next season. And we just, we won that game. And I remember going back to Parramatta at the end of the game with my dad and church was just full of people. And I just remember dancing in the streets. There were these gentlemen with bongo drums. <laughs> And it was just such a happy night and it led into what was just a really exciting grand final week that I really soaked up. We all know what sort of happened mm. in the grand final, but I really remember that year with a lot of fondness. That was a fun ride. I was there at that game too, 75,000 people. Mm-hmm. I was in the bleachers and yeah, like I was with my friend and we just were pinching ourselves. We couldn't believe the run that Parramatta was on and it was, it was so much fun. Yeah, scarcely believable looking back. So mine goes back to the early 90s. So I guess I'm a, perhaps a little bit older than you. I reckon it was 92, 93, maybe 94. Perhaps I'm 9 or 10 years old and Parramatta were playing Manly on a Saturday afternoon. It was the ABC game on TV. Now, back in the early 90s, as you know, Parramatta were hopeless and had been from my, for my living memory. I was born in 83, so I was alive for two premierships in 83 and 86, but obviously remembered neither. So I'm watching this game with the usual anxious dread mixed with a pinch of hope and... <laughs> Before long, Manly, a really good side back then, they go to an 18-0 lead. Now, I want to turn it off, but I can't. I, I physically can't. And that affliction is rewarded when Parramatta score to make 18-6. And I should say at this point, I've never actually checked the records of this game. It's purely my memory. I may have it way wrong. So it's 18-6. Then it's 18-10 with a kick to come from the sideline. A dare to dream. It's an important kick. I'm not sure we have many points in us. So, you know, getting within a converted try seems really important. The kicker in my memory is Lee Oden Ryan, fast guy, beat Martin Afire in a match race in my first ever game that I attended, but was not much of a kicker from memory. Anyway, he strikes it, it's wobbly, it hits the post or crossbar, and either goes over or doesn't. I can't remember. But in the meantime, I jump up thinking it's going over, and in the process with my flailing arms, I knock off the glass light shade or, you know, lampy thing from the ceiling. And it comes crashing down and it smashes to a million bits and pieces. Mum is not happy at this point in my life. I'm in the middle of a run of breaking things around the house through what can only be described as sporting over-enthusiasm. And in the end, I think Manly went on to win pretty comfortably. But I think back to that game as the quintessential Parramatta Eels supporter moment for me because it started with anxious dread, was interrupted with genuine hope, but all ended in pieces and in my case, tears. So... There we go. I'm glad we we shared those moments. Thank you very much, Mary. No, that's totally okay. I've actually got one more if you'll allow me to share, which may be a more quintessential Parramatta Eels fan (laughs) supporter moment. Go for it. Um, So I first started supporting the Eels in 1998. That's the first year that I can remember really being an Eels fan. I know where this is going. Yes, (laughs) bring it on. You know where this is going, don't you? (laughs) 98. 
it's a Sunday afternoon, and much like your manly story, I'm just relying on my memory. Mm. So fingers crossed the details are right. Yeah. It's a Sunday, and I have to be at school for some reason. I've got some oh. sort of activity going on. So I jump in the car when the activity is done, and ABC are calling the game between mm-hmm. Parramatta and the Bulldogs to get into the grand final. Yeah. We're driving home. I'm listening. Everything's going really well. We get home, and Parramatta are leading 18-2. <laughs> this is the days of delayed coverage on television. That's so right. I walk into my house, and my dad is watching it on TV. I sit down next to him and I said, Dad, don't worry about it. We've got this. (laughs) I cuddle up to him to watch the remaining 20 minutes of the game. Every single Parramatta supporter in the world knows what happened after that. It's created tremendous scarring for me, (laughs) but also for my dad, who after that game went out and tried to get himself hit by a car. We live in a cul-de-sac, so nothing (laughs) happened. But to me... That's being a Parramatta supporter, isn't yeah. it? Oh, well, I'm glad I could share this with someone because, you know, sometimes <laughs> it's a lonely experience being a Parramatta supporter. So I'm glad we've had this moment, Mary. Thank you very much. That's all right. I've got your back. Okay. Now, Mary, I contacted you after reading your NRL.com piece on the place of cheerleaders in the NRL. And it really resonated with me because you focused on the complexity of the issue, which I really appreciated. And, and people might think, what's so complex about it? But I think it is. Can you step us through your path on the issue, where you began, where you currently stand, and and what took you there? Yeah, I certainly can. So growing up, cheerleaders were very much a part of my rugby league experience. Mm. I remember going to Parramatta Stadium as a little girl, and the cheerleaders would be present sort of before the game, after the game, and of course in the middle during halftime. Now, I probably grew up a bit of a chubby sort of kid, sort of looked at the cheerleaders and may have potentially been a little bit jealous back in those days. Like I didn't really understand what they were there for and what they contributed. And that attitude sort of took me through, I would say, into my early 20s. And then, of course, through Ladies Who League, I had the opportunity to meet some wonderful women. So one is Darcy McDonald. Mm-hmm. Darcy is a former Canterbury Bulldogs cheerleader and now works at Fox Sports. Okay. And Nat Sinclair is a former Penrith Panthers cheerleader and she is now a lawyer. And I met these two women and they sort of told me about their experiences as rugby league cheerleaders. And the reason they got into cheerleading was because they wanted to support their team They were dancers, they loved to dance, and sort of the opportunities for professional dancing were pretty limited, and they still are. So Darcy and Nat really had a a big bearing on me, and they really helped turn my view around. And as someone that is passionate about women being involved in rugby league, that means women getting involved in any capacity in which they like. And for some women, that's cheerleading. So I've really come full circle on the issue, but Mm. at the same time, I respect the right of clubs to make decisions about the way their game day looks. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. You've got your ear to the ground on these sorts of things, Mary, and I understand there are various opinions inevitably, but do you think there is a majority opinion on cheerleading in the game from the female side of things? Now, I realise that there's a fair chunk of people who don't really feel that strongly either way, and of course, there are also many degrees to something like this you may not prefer cheerleading as you remember it growing up but you might like a version of fan engagement that is somewhere on the spectrum between you know what you experienced as a kid and i don't know a drumming troupe uh, i get all that but do you, do you have a steer on where the the mainstream opinion is on this at the moment to be honest 
honest, I actually think it's one that a lot of people don't mind either way about. Mm -hmm. But I think there is certainly a view amongst some people that potentially it's an opportunity to be more inclusive and allow, you know, that more dance troupe type of thing with Mm -hmm. men and women and, and all people included. So potentially that's a way that clubs look to go in the future. But additionally, there are, I guess, other opportunities for clubs as well. I mean, we've seen the NRL develop really strong partnerships with touch football, so there's potential opportunities for that to happen at halftime. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot to think about when it comes to this issue. Yeah, there's a lot to think about, like you say. My position, I guess, uh, a little bit embarrassed about it, but I guess over the last decade or so, my position was pretty much going back to a game I attended back then and hearing a few inappropriate comments from the crowd mm-hmm. about the cheerleaders. Now, I would say that it was nothing sort of absolutely surprising. It was the kind of thing that you would hear quite a lot in in varying male-heavy environments, let's say workplaces, sports bars, etc. It was fairly, you know, typical, unimaginative, unremarkable, cliched stuff. Uh, But it did get me thinking, you know, do do we really need cheerleaders? It just brings out the worst in some people. That's what I thought back then. And so I guess that's where my position stood for a decade or so, maybe more. But reading your article made me think and reflect because, you know, for overseas listeners, we've had a heavy few weeks of public debate in Australia about, you know, power imbalances and sexual assault and rape and the behavior of men and the lack of accountability for those in power and the lack of a voice for those without power. That's a, a summary. And one of the most odious takes of the last few weeks is the one where someone, usually an old man, sort of counsels women to change their behavior, maybe with mm-hmm. clothing or whatever to avoid being assaulted rather than the onus being squarely and entirely on men to, like, not assault women. And while your article didn't explicitly go there, it did get me thinking about my existing position on cheerleaders where I was saying, well, it doesn't bring out the best in some men, does it? So do we really need them? Which, in hindsight, was was very much along the same lines of those shocker takes from the old men in the sexual assault debates we're having. So, yeah, I guess I'm happy to be looking at it through a different lens now. And like you say, it sort of becomes more of a a marketing issue rather than a statement. You know, how can clubs maximise fan engagement before, during, after the game? What are they trying to achieve? What's the best way to achieve it? You know, traditional cheerleading or gymnasts or drummers, cowbells? I don't know. I couldn't agree with you more, and I can't remember whether I raised it in the article or not. I'll have to go back and look. Mm. But one of my key thoughts is that it isn't the responsibility of the cheerleaders to patrol or to change the behaviour of those watching them Mm. and the comments that they make. Those people are the ones that are making the comments and they're the ones that need to change. And it shouldn't be women that stop doing what they love or participating in the game in the way they love because of the behaviour of other people. Yeah, yeah. So I put my hand up, terrible old-fashioned take, which your article helped me uh, reflect on. Now, Mary... thank you. Yeah. That means a lot. It really does. Thank you. Now, Mary, we are talking one week-ish after International Women's Day, and I'm curious to know about what International Women's Day feels like to you in 2021. Is it exciting, exhausting, empowering, frustrating? How does it feel? I'll begin by saying that in most years, International Women's Day is one of my favourite days on the calendar because even though I recognise that we have a really long way to go when it comes to gender equality in this country... It's a wonderful opportunity to celebrate how far we've come. And particularly when I look at sport, I think a tremendous amount has been achieved over the last five years. So generally it's a day of celebration. But to be honest, this year I just felt really, really tired. And we touched on what's been going on in Canberra over the last couple of weeks. Mm. 
with all that happening, I just, I don't know, I just didn't feel excited about International Women's Day this year. And I don't think I was the only person either, which is really sad. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I saw on social media you attended the the rallies earlier in the week about that. That must have been an interesting experience and quite empowering in a way. Yeah, to see so many men and women coming together to talk about an issue that really matters and draw attention to it, I think was really inspiring. And I think of all the survivors that marched and rallied yesterday Mm. and all of the survivors that spoke and the tremendous courage that it took. Yeah, I mean... If that many people come out to say we want to talk about something or something needs attention, if I were a politician, I'd certainly be listening. Yeah, well said. Now, Mary, you started Ladies Who League in 2013, and it's gone from strength to strength since. In the last eight years, I'm curious, what is one cliche or platitude or stereotype about women in sport that you've seen upended in mainstream opinion? And on the flip side... What is one that remains stubbornly immovable at this point in time? It's a great question. And I suppose the first thing I want to tell you is that when I started Ladies Who League all those years ago, at that point it was very much about encouraging more women to get involved in conversations about the game, Mm -hmm. but also promoting the women that I could see. And at that stage it remained very much administrators, the media, fans, volunteers. Mm. At that stage, I didn't even really know that women could play rugby league. And growing up, it had never been a question that I had asked. And sort of look back on that time with sort of a sense of shame that I never asked the question. But Mm. you can't be what you can't see. And at that point, I couldn't see any women playing rugby league. So once I worked out that the Australian Jillaroos existed, I thought, well, if I don't know who these women are as a passionate footy fan, then there'll be others that are the same. So that's the context I was coming at it from. So back in those days, and it wasn't that long ago, the question was, are people really interested in women's sport? Mm. And I think given the dramatic changes that we've seen, you know, through the ASLW, through cricket and the WBBL, through so many women's sports leagues being established and set up and, you know, the increased interest in the Australian Jillaroos and the NRLW, I don't think we get asked that question much anymore. You know, are people interested in women's sport? Mm. I think the answer is a resounding yes. In terms of the question that still hangs, I feel like people still say, oh, well, people pay to go watch women's sport. And I think that myth is slowly starting to be debunked as well. I mean, we saw over 86,000 people at the MCG last year to watch the Australian women's cricket team win the ICCT 20 Women's World Cup final. Mm -hmm. The ASLW have started charging this year and people turn out. Mm -hmm. And additionally, I mean, the NRLW happens at the same time as NRL finals, but I know people pay to go watch those games. So I think that's the myth that we are debunking at the moment. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, State of Origin, I've been to a couple of the women's State of Origin. The charge for that. Yeah, absolutely. North Sydney Oval has been rocking the last few years. Now, Mary, what has your personal experience been over these eight years? From an outside perspective, it seems like a sea of positivity and that your, you know, vibrant personality has a great way of bringing people along with you. But I'm guessing reality has been a little less straightforward. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, what has the experience of building Ladies Who taught you about the world in which we live? Because this is basically all happening in your 20s. And I know it's different for different people, but in my 20s, I still didn't know who I was or who I wanted to be. So in many ways, there's still formative years when you're still getting to know about the world around you and how things operate and who you can trust and who you can't. So I'm just curious, what has this whole experience taught you? 
Yeah, that's a great question and one that I don't think I've ever been asked before. But what I will say is that Ladies Who League has changed my life in the most incredible, wonderful way. (laughs) And it has really taught me a lot about myself and who I am and also sort of what I value in life. So people often ask what inspires me. Now, I have great parents and they are certainly up there, Mm -hmm. but I often talk about how women in sport as a whole inspire me because for many years, and it's still the case for a lot of women playing sport, they play sport for the love of it. They not only play sport, they're juggling university, they're juggling families, they're juggling careers, they're doing all sorts of things. And they play sport because they love it and often make tremendous sacrifice to do so. Mm. So that has taught me so much about the importance of pursuing what you love, even when it's really difficult. But I think the biggest thing that Ladies Who League has taught me is it's really brought me into my own feminism. Women's issues and, you know, the importance of women was always something that I was really interested in. Mm. But it wasn't still until I started thinking more deeply about women's sport that I started asking more questions And anyone that's seen my Twitter feed over the last two weeks will have seen that it's become a little bit political given everything that's happening in Canberra at the moment. Mm. My early 20s, I wasn't really interested in politics at all. Mm -hmm. But doing Ladies Who League has really opened my eyes and, you know, exposed me to a broader range of issues. But I guess as well, the great thing about Ladies Who League is the wonderful people that I've met along the way. And what I can say about all the sports that I've worked with is that they've really made me feel welcome and as part of a family. So I really do feel like I'm part of the Australian sporting family and that is something that I'm extremely grateful for. And if it were to all end tomorrow, I'd just look back with fondness and say, Jay, you know, what a wild ride. I was so lucky to do that. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's a great answer. Thanks for that, Mary. Now, I suppose this is linked, Mary. By definition, not everybody can be at the forefront of the public discourse on a particular topic. So how do you approach things when you're at a barbecue or something and you're chatting with, I don't know, your cousin or your uncle or your partner's friends and a topic comes up, maybe it is around modern feminism, but maybe it's something else, uh, but something that you've spent, you know, a significant period of time, years coming to a considered opinion on and the topic comes up and the other parties in the conversation clearly haven't spent a lot of time thinking of it but it doesn't stop them having a strident opinion in the opposite direction. So what's your approach there? Because it is a fine line, you know, firing back with facts and figures might be tempting, but it also might be counterproductive. But then again, it's hard to let some comments slide by unchallenged. So do you have a method and approach for situations such as these? Yeah, I sure do. I usually uh, take a couple of deep breaths, (laughs) listen and try to engage in a conversation with that person. But I think as well, it does sort of depend on the person that you're speaking to and sometimes you do have to pick your battles. I'm using a pretty extreme example here, but my grandparents, they both came, well, my grandma and my grandpa that are still alive came out to Australia from Cyprus probably about 50 years ago. So you can imagine the sort of generation that Yayafi and Bapul Khan are part of. I remember one day, um, it was during the 2016 Olympics, and I called them ahead of time because I usually go visit them every weekend. And I said, Yayan Bapul, make sure the TV's on when I get there because the Matildas will be playing. Hmm. Um, Or I think I said the soccer's on because my grandfather really likes soccer. And I got there and I said, why isn't the TV on? My grandpa goes, oh, I couldn't find any football, only the girls were playing. Hmm. 
And in my head, I thought, oh, my goodness, you two have no idea who I am or what I do. But then I turned the television on and we ended up watching the game together. And my grandfather held my hand as the Matildas entered into their penalty shootout. So even the most, um, yeah, it was a really nice moment. But um, yeah, even the most, I wouldn't call them backward. They are of a different generation, but... Even those people can come around eventually, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, well well played. Mary, we touched on this a bit earlier. So who are the the female figures in the game of rugby league or in sport, be they journalists or administrators or or elsewhere, that inspired you initially to have a crack in the first place and and to take it further in the years since? I've got to say, in the beginning, it wasn't really a particular person involved in rugby league. It was more that I was working at a corporate law firm and I was working there and, you know, I talk about rugby league a lot. So usually when people meet me, they learn very quickly that I have this big passion. Yeah. And this woman named Simone Wetton was working at the organisation as well. And she said, you have this really big passion. You should do something about it. And I said, oh, I don't think so. No one will really be interested in what I have to say. And she said, no, no, you should give this a crack. So I went home and I thought about it and I realised I had nothing to lose and then sort of Ladies Who League started the very next day. Right. But through the years, there have been so many women that have inspired me to keep talking about the game. So if I think about former Gillaroos, like Katrina Fanning and Tasha Gale that had to pay their way to go on tour, mm. that were sort of part of an earlier generation that when they were interviewed, they'd ask whether they struck their breasts together for games. Mm. Like those sorts of women and their stories really inspire me. As do women like Casey Badger and Belinda Sharp who have broken ground when it comes to women's refereeing. The women in the media are absolutely incredible and we almost take them for granted now, I think, because they're just so part of the landscape now that it doesn't even click that they're women, Mm -hmm. which is the way it should be. And then we've got our current players, but also the administrators involved in the game. So Suzanne Young, former COO at the NRL, Marina Goh, Raylene Castle, Lynn Anderson... These have all been women that have, you know, worked in what is a male-dominated environment, particularly in the earlier years when some of these women were involved. Mm. So to see them continue to stand up and to work for the game is always deeply inspiring. But probably the most inspiring of all now are the little girls coming through that are aspiring to be the next, you know, Ali Brigginshaw or Keziats. That's always really special. Yeah. Now, what's your opinion on on having a a women in league round in the NRL men's competition? Uh, Is it essential? Is it patronising? Where do you sit on that spectrum? To me, again, it sort of comes back to International Women's Day. I hope there's a time where we don't need it, but Mm. it is a really great opportunity to celebrate all the good we do in rugby league. And I've talked about um, all the women involved. The other thing that I really want to sort of put my hand up and say I'm proud of the NRL for is the no-fault stand-down policy Mm -hmm. because there's no code in Australia that has a policy like that. So Mm -hmm. that is another reason that I think the NRL has something to celebrate. But I actually think women in league ground could be used as a really great opportunity going forward to kick off the NRLW because I want them to make the teams play each other twice. So mm-hmm. that would turn it into, say, an eight-week competition. Yeah. Women in league round is usually in August. So I think that timing would work out well. That's a good point. That's a good point. And I, I do think the women in league round has evolved over the years as well. I, I remember five or ten years ago, I swear it was just articles of men talking about how thankful mm-hmm. they are that their mum makes them lunch mm-hmm. every every week or every day sort of thing. So... 
but nowadays it is a lot more sophisticated conversation about the role women have in the game. So I do think it has evolved. If it was how it was uh, five or ten years ago, then I think it would be time to scrap it. But uh, yeah, as long as it keeps evolving, probably a good thing. Yeah. I couldn't agree more and I think the importance of it is that we celebrate women involved at all levels of the game. Mm. So volunteers are a crucial part of our game. So are fans and members and the mums that drive their kids to sport. But so are our players and our referees and the media and our administrators. Women are involved in rugby league everywhere. You just sort of have to keep your eyes out for them. Yes, absolutely. And I should say, you know, mums making lunch is, is a good thing. Love mums making lunch, <laughs> but obviously there's much more to it than that. So, uh, Mary, you've also written, and you just spoke about this, but you've written recently about the need for the NRLW to take the next step. And so you're saying the next step is for this four-team competition to play each other twice, uh, uh-huh. which is, sounds good. And, and this year could be the year. I'm curious, you know, perhaps more importantly, what are the potential consequences of standing still for too long? potential consequences are that we look like we're not taking the women's game seriously Mm. and I completely understand why the NRL is taking it slowly slowly and I appreciate that we absolutely need to have a marketable and sustainable competition Mm. that's why I think doubling the length of the competition is a good start for the moment and then additionally there are teams that are interested in getting licenses to be involved in the competition So consider those licences, and even if you want to bring those teams in in 20... What year is it? It's 2021, isn't it? It is. Even if you wanted to bring those teams in in 2023, at least we have movement and those clubs can get some certainty around what they're doing and what they need to do to get ready. Yeah. Because clubs like the West Tigers, for example, they've just announced a new women's academy, and Mm -hmm. there are many other clubs interested in having a team. So I think we do need to continue to move quickly because if women aren't given opportunities, they will move to other sports. Yeah. I guess it's a similar situation with the women's state of origin. It's time to extend that to a a three-game series. But it's not just a matter of giving them extra games, is it? What are the other factors which need to be considered when the NRL is considering expanding a footprint of a semi-professional setup such as the NRLW? I'm really glad you've asked that question because the three-game state of origin series is one that a lot of people talk about Mm -hmm. and I know they talk about it because they love women's footy and they want more. So thank you to those people for wanting more. (laughs) But we'll talk about, we'll use Boyd Cordner as the example because he's been a central figure for the New South Wales Blues for the last couple of years. When Boyd Cordner gets selected into the men's state of origin team, he gets a phone call on the Sunday night and needs to be in camp the next day. He gets time away from the Roosters to be part of that camp and he gets paid to be involved in State of Origin as well as the money that he gets from his Sydney Roosters contract. Mm -hmm. So Voigt goes away, he's in camp, he gets to go to camp, he plays his games and then, you know, if he's selected again, we'll do the exact same thing for games two and three. It's not the same in the women's game because the women's game is not fully professional yet. Mm. So if Ali Brigginshaw gets a call on a Sunday night, she has to work out what she's going to do about her job and taking time away from her job. She has to organise for her family to be looked after. There's a whole bunch of competing considerations. And additionally, when we think about 2021, it's supposed to be a Rugby League World Cup year. So if you're asking women who are part of the Australian Gillaroo squad to go away to the UK for, say, four to five weeks, Mm. add three weeks in for State of Origin, that's eight weeks. No one has that much leave from work. That's a very good point. So it's tough. Yeah. But I want more women's footy. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the answer there, I guess, is more resourcing, paying the women more. Mm -hmm. I suppose that's all part of it, isn't it? Sure is. 
Now, what about the timing of the NRLW competition? It coincides with the men's final series at this stage. Is that clever marketing to piggyback off increased audiences or does it relegate the competition to something that can never really rise above curtain raiser status? You know, should, should we move it to February like the AFLW, for example? So if we move into February, I do worry about the heat, mm-hmm. but I completely agree that there is an opportunity to think about the timing of the competition. The thing that I sort of struggle a little bit with with the NRLW is that as a fan, and particularly as a fan of women's footy, I would go to as many games as I could, but you're forced to pay for finals tickets if you want to do that. Yeah. So that makes it a little bit challenging. Two years ago, we did see a standalone game at North Sydney Oval. Was it North Sydney? No, Leichhardt. Leichhardt, yeah, that's right. Leichhardt. I was there. I actually went to North Sydney Oval later that afternoon for the cricket. <laughs> um, but there was a standalone game at Leichhardt, and that was well attended. So I think there is an opportunity there. But it will be interesting to see what they do with timing, particularly if they extend the competition this year, mm. because I assume that'll mean that it just goes into the NRL regular season towards the back end. Yeah, yeah. It is a tricky one, because I suppose... If I looked at the television ratings over the last couple of years and the bigger rating games were the ones that were closer to the finals games and the ones that were, you know, last year they had to be brought forward because of COVID and so they were kind of in the morning or, you know, even the standalone games, they they kind of rated a bit lower than the other ones. So it's a tricky one because you want to maximise the exposure but then again, you also want to to build it and make it sustainable on its own two feet. So I'm not sure what the answer is, to be honest, but uh, worth discussing. Uh, I guess the other thing with yeah. it is, is that often NRL crowds get compared to AFL crowds. Mm. What I will say is that I never really get into that debate because I really feel like NRL is a TV sport whilst AFL isn't. Mm. So potentially from a broadcast perspective, it works having all those games during the final series Mm. and people could just sit at home and roll one game into the next. So I wonder whether that's also a consideration. Yeah, you might be right there. And and while we're on the NRLW, where do you stand on the naming conventions of women's sporting competitions such as NRLW? Should they be made consistent with the men's competitions? Uh, That's a sort of debate that's coming up recently. Uh, If so, why? Yeah, look, I do, and it's it's actually a really, really touchy one. People get very, very touchy when people want to engage in this debate. Mm. So friends of mine run the Outer Sanctum podcast, and that is almost like Ladies Who League but for AFL. Okay. And they have coined the terms AFLW and AFLM, and they both sit under the banner of AFL. And I sort of get that. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. why is the AFL the men's competition and then we have the AFLW for the women? So wouldn't bother me at all to have NRLM and NRLW under the banner of NRL, but mm. I'm not sure that as a society we're quite ready for that yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the other side of it, you could just call them both AFL or both NRL and just call yeah. them the Sydney Roosters women's team and the Sydney Roosters men's team. Absolutely, you, know. you could. Yeah, so... That's a very interesting discussion that I look forward to uh, witnessing over the next few years. It is a touchy subject for some reason. Now, on a broader level, is there enough being done to encourage women to play at the grassroots level? You know, for people who aren't interested in making the top grade, but, you know, want to keep fit on the weekend instead of, say, doing CrossFit or, or spin classes at the gym? I think there is, especially when you think about the NRL and rugby league encompassing more than just the contact version of the game. Mm -hmm. You've also got tag, touch, and tackle versions of the game. So 
I think there is an opportunity for women to get involved. What I think is the most important thing, though, is if you speak to the current generation of players, particularly the older ones, most of them will tell you the same story in that they had to stop playing rugby league when they were 12 years old because they were no longer allowed to play with the boys. Mm. So we are now starting to get the benefit of women coming through who have had a complete pathway all the way through. Yeah. And I think the talent levels are going to explode because in New South Wales and Queensland, a concerted effort has been made to really develop that pathway. And, you know, in New South Wales, we have the Tasha Gower competition that moves into the Harvey Norman Women's Premiership competition and you're sort of developing that pathway. So, you know, girls can play in that competition and then if they want to progress, they know what the next steps are. Yeah, yeah, very true. Now, Mary, we are running out of time, so a couple more questions, if I may, if that's okay with you. You may, of course you may. Wonderful. Now, Toby Rudolph, what did you think about that, you know, semi controversy i suppose for those overseas listeners he was in a little bit of hot water with the way he answered a question about celebrating after the sharks win over the st george illawarra dragons talked about drinking a lot and going out and uh, picking up basically how did you find that and, and the reaction and what are your thoughts all right so what i want to say about toby rudolph is that i am completely calm I am not outraged what i'm going to say next is simply a comment mm-hmm. so My understanding is that Toby Rudolph said, oh, I'm going to head out, drink a thousand beers, and I think he said, I'm going to pick up anything will do. Mm -hmm. Language is really, really important. And I'm currently doing a fellowship with Our Watch, which is the National Organisation for the Prevention of Violence Against Women. And what we know from the research is that gender inequality is the driver of men's violence against women. It's sort of the seed from where it all grows. Now, I'm not in any way linking Toby Rudolph to violence against women, but what I do want to say is that language matters. So women aren't things, women are women, and it's potentially just an opportunity for him to learn. As I understand it, he didn't really get in any trouble from the NRL, he just got a warning. Mm-hmm. My observation is is that it might be just an opportunity for him to learn a little bit about language. But certainly in the grand scheme of things, it's not an abomination. I'm not angry. I'm not outraged. And I probably won't give it another thought after this week. But um, I love that players show personality and Toby has an excellent one. So I hope this doesn't deter him. Yeah, no, that's that's really well said. And I'm glad you sort of make the point that uh, you're not outraged because there is outrage, but it, it's from people who are imagining outrage. So the outrage that I've seen is from people who have found outrage that doesn't exist. You know, so for instance, the NRL said they basically haven't punished him. They've given him a warning. There's no fine. He's not paying a cent. He's not suspended or anything. It's it's a very low level. Please don't do that again if you if you don't mind. And there's no real outrage from the people who have said, maybe you should think twice before saying that again. The outrage is coming from people who are angry and are imagining outrage that is not really there. Mm. So I'm glad you sort of made that distinction as well. Definitely, because I find it's a real problem on social media in that I'll make a comment about something and people will ask why I'm outraged. Mm. It's actually quite rare that I'm outraged about something. And generally, if I am, you'll see me write an article about it because I find that when I'm angry, the words come out very, very quickly. But I think it's important that we're able to have a conversation about it because the conversation that you and I just had was really reasonable. No one got upset. No one was angry. And at the end, we're like, yeah, I see where that person's coming from. I get it. And I think sometimes social media takes away our ability just to have those, you know, 
general conversations about things. Very true. Very true. The medium is the message. Hey, and I guess it's similar to those, uh, you know, those sort of semi controversies about you know the red skin lollies or those lollies that have changed their names because they were offensive names to to certain groups. No one was really ever outraged in the first place. You know, a few people said, "Hey, do you mind changing the name of these lollies because they're a bit offensive?" The name to to our group. And then they were changed. And then there was a whole bunch of outrage about outrage that wasn't really there. So it's a very similar uh-huh. thing in my and opinion. And for me, I, I want people to feel included and I yeah. want people to feel happy. I still eat the lollies. I don't really care <laughs> what they're called. But if it makes other people feel happier, more included and more yeah. comfortable. What's the big deal? Then I'm, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well said, Mary. Now, before we finish up, and I really appreciate you being so generous with the time. I know you do this ladies who business on the side, so really appreciate this. But I'm interested to know, what is the plan for ladies who in an ideal world? Where is it in 10 years' time? Oh, I get asked this question a lot, and the answer is I have no idea because I'm literally flying by the seat of my pants. But... <laughs> Um, it's funny, people, I, I used to say that I would stop doing what I do when, you know, seeing Sam Kerr on the front page of the newspaper was the norm and when we had established women's competitions across the board. But the truth really is that I don't think I'll ever stop doing it because I just love it so much. Yeah. So it's an absolute joy and thanks for having me on the show. I guess if I look 10 years ahead, I want to continue to be involved in sport Perhaps at the administration level, that might be what's coming next. Yep. Okay. Deal. That sounds great. Okay, Mary, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. You've been a beacon and it's lovely to spend some time with you and feel the reflected glow for an hour or so. So all the best with ladies who and all else. Mary Constantopoulos, thank you. Thank you. A million times thank you for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Can I say a big thank you for having me? I've really enjoyed the chat and hope I can come back again. But I also want to say thank you to you for the incredible work that you do. Rugby League is what it is because of the diversity of fan group that we have. And this is a passion for you as well. So continue to use that passion and continue to talk about our game because it's really, really important and valuable what you do. Oh, thank you, Mary. It's a good old-fashioned loving. Thank you very much. <laughs> much appreciated. All the best. Progressive Rugby League. Honestly, couldn't think of a better guest for the 100th show. Thank you, Mary. Okay, there you have it. No huge song and dance for the century, but did want to acknowledge it because, well, I'm genuinely vain, but I also wanted to say a big and hearty thanks to the two fellas that drove the show through its early and middle phases. I'm talking about you, Slug, and you, Big Al. A couple of the best, sweetest, funnest fellas one could know. Of course, a shout-out, too, to all our guests. I think we've done 30-odd interviews now from players and coaches to journalists and authors, filmmakers, administrators and comedians. Thanks for always sharing the love you have for the game and presenting it in such a warm and interesting way for our listeners. And speaking of listeners, and listeners is such an impersonal term, isn't it? Let's go friends who listen. Speaking of friends who listen, well, you know, we are a relatively small band of women and men and boys and girls, but you know, I wouldn't have it any other way except maybe the way where there's millions of you. But what I'm trying to say is I really, really, really appreciate all the support you've given the pod over the last three years. And it is about three years to the day since we released our first ever episode. 
you've been with us as we've morphed and changed and as we've tried a few things here and there and all the way through you've warmed us with a virtual nod or a tweeted smile to say you're doing okay and keep giving it a crack and that's all the encouragement we need in fact it means everything when you think about it because without listeners sorry friends who listen there is no point and there is no show so i know i say it a lot but i mean it every single time thanks until we next cross paths tiptoeing through those beautiful goddamn rugby league tulips rugby league hobby and see ya okay that was a bit of a song and dance <laughs>